Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. Hi, my name is Caitlin. I'm going to be reading the Bible to, uh, for us today. Um, so from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For you out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great that we can continue to meet together, even though things are a bit different. My name's Tim, if we haven't met, and it's great that technology allows us to keep on coming together to sitting under God's Word, even when, well, the lecture theatre I'm in is pretty much empty. Let's pray that God would speak to us uh, as we look again at this great part of His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your kindness to us, even in these interesting and challenging times. Father, thank You that Your Word continues to speak what is true and good. And Father, as we look at what Genesis 3 has to say to us, we pray that You may give us understanding, that the technology may allow us uh, to come and sit under Your Word and hear Your voice wherever we are, and that You may speak to us and give us challenge and comfort and the Word that we need to hear. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Tony said, there's an outline that you can download. And if you have any questions through the talk, please do text them in. Uh, we'd love to be hearing from you. And also you can fill out the slip that will help us to actually follow up with you or uh, be praying for you throughout the week. Well, as we look at Genesis 3, as I sat down to write this talk only just a couple of weeks ago, it's interesting how different our world was. Uh, I was thinking of bushfires and floods and droughts and abuse and violence and crime but really, they've all faded into the background now, haven't they? There's one problem with the world as we know it at the moment. It's COVID-19. It's why I'm speaking to you online. It's why life looks very different for us day to day. Does it ever make you wonder as you experience this sitting at home in empty lecture rooms around the place with kids or not in the office? What is wrong with our world? Why are things as they are? I mean, climate change was the hot topic and we'd point the finger at, well, leaders who failed us, at big business and carbon emitters who haven't cared for the environment. But what about with COVID-19? Do we point the finger at someone who ate the wrong food from a meat market? Was that really the wrong thing to do? But what about, well, beyond the pandemic, the moral sickness of the world, bullying, violence, abuse? Are these all independent problems or do they actually have one common root cause, something that ties them all together? You've probably heard a famous story about the Times of London asking for submissions to this question, the question we're looking at today. What's wrong with the world? One response read as follows, you can see on the screen. Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now, sadly, the story actually seems more likely fiction than fact. What do you think about the idea? Does Chesterton claim too much? He wasn't a terrorist. He wasn't a big carbon polluter. He sought to live a morally upright life and he didn't even carry COVID-19. Is he too down on himself in need of a bit more positive self-talk? Well, perhaps surprisingly, as we move from an English philosopher at the start of the 20th century to the American king of pop at the end of the century, that same idea comes up. In the chorus of Man in the Mirror, Michael Jackson's three-time platinum single, he sings, and I won't for your sake, he sings, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make that change. Now, it might be a bit much to say that you or I am the only problem with the world. But are you bold enough to take a look in the mirror, to take an honest look at yourself and see that you're part of the problem? 
And if you recognize that, what can you do about it? That there is a problem with the world is obvious. Exactly what that problem is, is less clear. And what we need to do? Well, no one seems to have the answer. But fortunately, the God who made the world hasn't abandoned us to the mess that we find ourselves in. He acknowledges there's a problem, and He tells us what it is, and He actually offers us the solution, which I think you'll agree is a message that we all deeply need to hear. So if you're following along in the outlines, we're at point one, the heart of the problem. Now, if you've been with us these last few weeks up to this point in the biblical account, God has made a very good creation. There's order and purpose and blessing and rest. Things are going really well. So far, we've only heard God speak and the man speak as he names the animals. Other conversations have definitely happened in the background, but it's interesting as we meet the third speaker in the Bible. It's a serpent. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now we know that snakes don't talk. So as we read this, we attempted to treat it a bit like Dr. Doolittle, an entertaining work of fiction. But that would be wrong. Is it too hard for the God who spoke creation into existence to have a snake talk? If we're guided by the narrative, the woman is not surprised. And in chapter 22 of a book that comes a bit later in the Bible, the book of Numbers, God opens the mouth of a donkey to speak to his wayward prophet Balaam. It's definitely not normal for animals to speak, but it's also not beyond belief that things took place just as Genesis 3 records them. Now, interestingly, we aren't told much about this serpent. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation in chapters 12 and 20, this serpent is linked to the devil, who's also called Satan. But here in Genesis 3, we're simply told that God created the serpent and that he's the most crafty among all the animals. Crafty, not necessarily in a bad way. The same word is used to describe the prudent person in the book of Proverbs. But as the narrative continues, this craftiness is used for evil. For first, the serpent instills doubt in the woman's mind. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? Not at all. That's actually a direct contradiction to the benevolent, the generous, the loving command of God. Word for word, you'll find it's the opposite of chapter 2 and verse 16, where God said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Do you see the cunning of the serpent? His feigned incredulity that God would be so cruel and wisely and restrictive, it sows doubt in the woman's mind. Is God truly as good as she thought? Do you know the feeling? When your friend comes to you and says, why does your God hate gay people? It takes you back. You wonder if God really is the God of love that you know Him to be. It invites you to doubt. Now that doubt may be natural, but do you see the folly of the situation? God has just made and provided for and blessed the man and his wife in every way. God's goodness is evident all around them. They have an intimate and a personal relationship with God. They alone are His image bearers, the rulers of creation, given this place of honor and responsibility. They are godlike in the world. They know God and His good and gracious works. 
So what right does the serpent, but a creature of God, have to slander God with blatant lies? And what right does your friend have to accuse God or malign his character? And yet these lies about God enter his good creation and they tempt us to doubt. The woman responds in verse 2 to correct the serpent. And while she's on the right track, she makes two subtle but significant changes. Did you notice them in verse 2? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The first change is subtle. God gave them every tree. It's a, a great command, but the woman... She drops the every, and perhaps thrown by the serpent, perhaps retelling a little less bountifully than God's original blessing. But secondly, she adds another constraint. It's not just eating, but even touching that leads to death. God seems more severe and harsh. The serpent can smell blood. The woman has brought, bought the premise that God isn't as good as he claims. So the serpent pushes on, appealing to the woman's aroused suspicion and desire. Have a look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Having implied that God was holding out in verse 2, the serpent now flatly denies God's promise. In chapter 2 and verse 17, God said, You shall not eat, for in the day you eat, you shall surely die. Rubbish, says the serpent. And to back up such arrogance, the serpent claims this special, this superior knowledge of God. Who would be so naive as to take God at his word? Can't you see God's holding back the good stuff? He doesn't want what's best for you. He wants to control you. Now, if you really want what is good, then you've got to take control. The choice before the woman is between autonomy and submission between setting her own direction or obeying God's voice. And as the woman's eyes move from God to the fruit and then to herself, she falls for the deception. Verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and thought it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one's wise. Do you see, they're all good things, aren't they? In chapter 2 and verse 9, God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God's already given them what is good and told them what is good. But now the woman sets her eyes on more, on being more than God made her to be, or wanting a greater good that God said was good for her to have. So she puts herself in the place of God. She determines her own good. What God said was evil she decides is good. You know it in yourself, don't you? When desire takes over, we are big and God becomes small. And disobedience is just a matter of time. See how fast they fall in the second half of verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Just eight words in the Hebrew original recount this tragic avalanche. It's like we're watching the lead up to a car crash in slow motion. And then just on impact, we hit fast forward. It's over before we know it. The creature tempted God's image bearers to reject God's good rule 
and set out on their own. But in the process, they flip the car. They've turned God's good order upside down and they don't look back. But in the middle of this shocking flip, did you see a surprising detail flash through the the frame? Adam is sitting right there in the passenger seat. He's like a negligent driving instructor. He's been there all along, but he did nothing to avoid the pending crisis. He's silent and complicit in the rebellion. He received God's initial command, but when his wife comes under attack, he fails to lead and correct and uphold what is good. In verse 1, the serpent is even like it's addressing him. He uses the plural command, did God actually say to both of you? It's like Adam is being spoken to by the serpent, but he's asleep at the wheel. You see, the heart of the problem is the human heart. Though loved and blessed by God, they were tempted to doubt God's goodness. They questioned His willingness to fulfill their desires. And instead of obedience, they chose autonomy. This is what the Bible calls sin. Rejecting our Creator God in order to rule our own lives. While it leads to devastating actions, at its heart, sin is a rejection of relationship. And Romans 1 teaches us that ignorance is no excuse. As creatures in God's good creation, we ought to perceive, we ought to know that there is a divine creator. But we're all guilty of suppressing this truth and rejecting this relationship. Now back in the garden, what are you expecting to happen next? Now if we're all sitting here in the room together, this would be a great opportunity for you to chat with the person next to you, but we're not. But the question's still going to be up on the screen and you're going to have a chance to chat with the people, well, in your living room if there's anyone. But have a think for yourself, what are you expecting to happen next? And you can also text in any uh, answers or questions that you have and the text line is, or the number is on the screen. What are you expecting to happen next? Well, I take it, if you've been reading through the, the narrative so far, you're expecting that they're going to fall down dead just like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Or like the captured spy who bites into his tooth filled with cyanide. Isn't that what God promised back in chapter 2 and verse 17? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But it doesn't happen. Instead, what the serpent promised takes place. What the serpent said rather than what God said. You see, in verse 7, their eyes are open. And in verse 22, God himself acknowledges that mankind has become like God. So whose word is right? Who should we trust? The serpent claimed superior knowledge. His word seems to be holding true. So let's keep reading. We're at point two, the result of rejection. While we expected death, verse 7 instead shines the light on two individuals awkwardly trying to hide their nakedness. We have fear and folly. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now what's going on? You may recall that chapter 2 finished describing the goodness of marriage as both being naked and not ashamed. It's a picture of complete openness, of trust, of vulnerability, of security. Everything was good. But now having rejected God's pattern and putting themselves at the center, they feel exposed, vulnerable. Sin has immediate consequences, damaging their relationship with each other. Their external clothing here reflects their internal reality. 
You see, knowing each other has chosen autonomy, putting themselves first, they no longer feel safe. Knowing what's in themselves, they no longer trust each other. Sin has brought fear into the world. The serpent lured them with the hope of greater good, but as their eyes are opened, they're confronted with evil. And instead of repenting and turning back to God, seeking His mercy and His help, they keep trusting in themselves. The best they can do is some fig leaf fashion, but any fool knows that those leaves won't do anything to protect them from the evil within. The woman desired wisdom as she took the fruit, but seeking it apart from God plunged her into folly. Then God turns up in verse 8, and again man's relationship with God is fractured, marked by fear and the folly of trying to hide from God. Pick it up in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? With this last question, man is trapped in the spotlight. With nowhere to run, Adam tries to shift the blame. He wants to reposition himself as the victim, not the villain. Verse 12, The woman you gave me, gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. It's like he's complaining, God, you said you were making a helper for me. But this woman that you put here with me, she has just caused harm. Without further comment, God addresses the woman. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now at least she doesn't blame God, but she follows Adam's blame-shifting pattern. But the serpent, notice he doesn't get a chance to speak in his defense. With his questions, God's restoring the order that his creatures overturned. But sadly, fear and folly aren't the end of the fall. As God speaks in judgment, there's also going to be hurt and hardship. Now, we typically refer to verses 14 to 19 as God's curse, and there's some truth in that. But a careful reading shows that the serpent in verse 14 and the ground in verse 17, they're the only ones that are actually cursed. But for each one involved, the serpent, the woman, the man, their punishment reflects their rebellious action. It affects their life's work and relationships. Or you could say it affects their labor and their love. Firstly, the serpent is cursed in verses 14 and 15. From the most crafty to the most cursed among the creatures, crawling on its belly, eating dust, as the lowest of the low. Add to this labor, the relationship with the woman is hostile. Not just this serpent and this woman, but all of their seed after them. This rebellion has altered the ongoing reality of the world. The serpent is stuck on the wrong side of the rulers of creation. Then God addresses a woman in verse 16. She was created as a helper for Adam, to bring about this profound new unity, to accomplish God's planned multiplication. But now, literally, her labor will be hard. Add to that this beautiful joining together in marriage to be one flesh that's now strained by an inner tension. And not just the fig leaves hiding the vulnerability of their nakedness. We're also told your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now these verses are notoriously difficult words to interpret. There's a few things that we can say clearly. 
the first is we need to be really clear. Uh, this verse in no way encourages or condones or permits any form of abuse within marriage. Uh, that's completely not on. Uh, last week we were reminded from Ephesians 5 about the right picture of the husband leading by sacrificially laying down his interests to love and serve his wife. We need to be really clear about that. But secondly, if you actually flip forward a page in your Bibles to chapter 4 and verse 7, this exact same phrase turns up with a different relationship. God says to Cain, Adam and Eve's son, in verse 7, God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, here's that same phrase, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here the desire is to lead, to control, to master, for Cain to do what sin desires. And Cain's job is to rightly rule, to do what is right, not to be led astray. So with Adam and his wife, her desire will be to lead Adam, but his job is to lead her. That's where Adam failed and his wife led him into sin. And that's exactly actually where verse 17 takes us as God addresses Adam. The ground is cursed. Why? Because he listened to the voice of his wife. Now, this obviously doesn't forbid husbands ever listening to their wives. Uh, loving your wife actually involves listening to her and knowing her, caring for her. The voice of your wife is precious and weighty. But even if this most trusted voice leads you towards sin, then you must not follow. Adam should have led his wife with truth and righteousness, but now... And the once fertile ground sprouts weeds instead of fruit trees. Weeds are constant and in my garden. They're an all too prevalent reminder that humanity has rebelled against God. So work is hard. Growing veggies doesn't come easily. And relationships hurt all the way to death. Then in verses 22 and 24, it continues. The man and woman are kicked out of God's garden. They're cut off from the tree of life. Having rejected God and His good word, that ruled in the garden, humanity is now driven out of God's place, cut off from life and blessing with God. You see, the woman thought autonomy was the way to freedom, wisdom and goodness. Isn't our world the same? They think you'll only be truly happy and free if you live your own way, a self-fulfilled way, listening to yourself, doing what pleases you. But Genesis 3 presents a different picture, doesn't it? The woman had freedom, wisdom and goodness in abundance when she submitted to God's rule. But tragically, as the woman reached for more, she lost all she had. Our world has got it wrong. Blessing comes from God, not ourselves. And so the good life is found in submission to God, not in autonomous rebellion. But is it actually bad? Uh, the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, that you can see a picture of him on the screen, he suggested that Genesis 3 is not actually a fall. He described it as a great awakening of humanity. Here man transitioned from an uncultured animal, like the rest of the existence, to being truly human, progressing from bondage to freedom by expressing this great autonomous and independent moral judgment. What do you think? Is Genesis 3 a picture of triumphant progress or tragic demise? Uh, is another chance to have a bit of a reflect for yourself. Uh, is it possible to go with what Immanuel Kant's saying? Genesis 3 is great progress rather than great pessimism. 
feel free to text in any questions or comments you have about that from the text line. No one's yet answering this question, but we'll pick up those questions that have been texted in in the Thursday live Q&A. So we look forward to hearing from you then, or talking with you again then. Uh, well, it's a pretty interesting question that Emmanuel Kant raises. It's pretty clear as you're reading through Genesis 3 on its own terms, it's hard to see this as a positive step forward. The goodness they had is lost in their rebellion against their Creator. And as we keep reading in coming weeks, things just go from bad to worse. This is not progress. This is a tragedy. So is there any grace and hope in Genesis 3? Well, we expected instant death. God would have been well within His rights to do this, but in His wisdom and His mercy, He didn't do that. Instead, God chose to reveal His gracious and merciful character, even to His rebellious creatures. Did you notice it all the way through the chapter? In verses 8 to 13, God just asks questions. He knows exactly what they've done, but He doesn't come with condemnation. Instead, He invites them to return to Him, to confess, to show repentance. But it's an offer they foolishly refuse. But God shows more grace. Even as He delivers judgment, there is hope. In verse 15, there's hope that the hostility will come to an end. Not immediately. It's going to be the work of one of the woman's offspring. But one day that offspring will bruise the head of the serpent. And it will hurt the seed. It will bruise his heel. There's no questioning who comes out on top, is there? The heel of the woman's offspring is firmly on the serpent's head. And notice that it's not just a future serpent. It's a future offspring, but it's this serpent. This great deceiver of humanity. He will be crushed. And for the woman, even though her pain will be multiplied, she still can reproduce. New life will come. And through that new life, God will bring deliverance. Even in the midst of condemnation, there's hope. And Adam has great hope as he gives his wife a new name. Verse 20, he calls her Eve, the mother of all living. And back in chapter 2 and verse 23, he first named her woman. He shared his very nature. That was a thing to rejoice in. Now he names her Eve. It's her destiny to be a fountain of life for the whole world. There is great hope here. For the man, even though the ground is hard and cursed, it will still bear fruit. It will cost him sweat and blood, but he can still eat. And for both Adam and Eve, God graciously provides suitable covering for their new state. They get a leather jacket instead of their leafy loincloth in verse 21. And even being driven from the tree of life, it's actually an act of God's grace. A man is not eternally bound in his fallen and rebellious state, taking from the tree and eating. Death is actually the mercy of God, bringing an end to the affliction in this hard and hostile world. So do you see, even in this hour of rejection, God is full of mercy and grace, giving hope for His disobedient creatures. He doesn't ignore sin. The consequences are real. They're hard. But God shows mercy even through it. But was the serpent right? Was God's promise of death an empty threat? Just as Carl has been encouraging us to read carefully through these chapters, we ought to not assume that this tension or this apparent contradiction would have taken the author by surprise. Instead, this tension pushes us beyond a merely superficial reading. What was the deception? What did God mean by death? 
You see, what the serpent claimed is partially true. And that makes the lies even more deceptive, doesn't it? Adam and Eve would surely die. The serpent was false. They have died, we know that. But was it on the day that they ate? And that was promised in verse 19 that they would die. They're cut off from the tree of life in verse 23, but they're still living. So is there more to life and death than having a pulse and breathing? In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about people who continue to live in rebellion against God as walking and living in death. But when they heard God's offer of reconciliation, as they received Jesus as their Lord, God made them alive. So there's a spiritual reality to life and death that's more significant, that's more lasting, even in our present physical lives. What God promised was surely true. Death came to Adam and Eve on the day they chose autonomy over submission, and they rejected God. But all this took place a really long time ago. Does this historical rebellion have anything to do with us? Well, the ongoing testimony of the Bible is that this one event has determined the whole shape of our existence ever since. There are point three in your outlines. This is us. Uh, Firstly, what does it mean for our world? Well, on the screen, Romans 8 says that the whole of creation is still suffering bondage and decay from the fall of Genesis 3. From Romans 8 and verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You see, humanity's rebellion against God has disordered and frustrated all levels of God's creation. Coronavirus, climate change, bushfires, droughts, floods, they're all features of a fallen world. A world subjected to futility, in bondage to corruption. But did you notice that there's hope? Not through vaccines or management plans or climate activism, though these may all be good aspects of our stewardship. But our hope for this world is the future creation. A creation set free from bondage when all things will be made new and perfect and glorious forevermore. At that time when Jesus returns, His triumphant return, His return to judge and make new all of creation. And if that's the case, then our best way to care for this world is, well, acknowledging that it's going to continue to battle on, doing our best, but waiting and hoping and longing for that day when Jesus comes. Because our life, our life is actually part of our world. And so, like the world, our bodies suffer. They decay, they die. Relationships are strained, fractured and broken. Our work is hard and it's painful. And even with epidurals, childbirth still hurts. But we aren't merely victims caught in the tide of suffering. We're part of the problem ourselves. If you have a look on the screen in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. 
It started with Adam. Sin and death came into the world through him. But it didn't stop there. Like we read in Genesis 3, we all doubt the goodness of God and His commands. We all desire more and chase the illusion of gaining something better. Something better for ourselves. And so we all choose autonomy over obedience. And we all reject God's rule and the blessing of relationship with Him. Death and judgment is what we all deserve. Now this isn't what Michael Jackson had in mind. But it is actually what G.K. Chesterton supposedly claimed. If we want to do something about the mess in our world, the place to start is the sinful autonomy of our own hearts. Sure, we may not be responsible for individually causing every instance of evil and suffering in the world, but as long as we continue in rebellion, we keep fighting against God. Our attempt to fix the world, or even our own lives, while we're still rejecting God, is just like sewing fig leaves together to cover our nakedness. It's pitiable folly. But having seen God's grace in Genesis 3, it should be no surprise that God is the one who provides the solution to this mess. And it comes through the offspring of the woman who didn't follow the way of Adam. But through his obedience, he opened the way to God for us. Have a look on the screens a bit further on in Romans chapter 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, we all stand condemned as rebels before God. But Jesus lived in perfect submission to His heavenly Father. And yet through His sacrificial death, He offers to take our condemnation on Himself. That's an incredible gift. Our death for His life, our disobedience for His obedience, our sin for His righteousness. We can't save ourselves, but God has provided the solution to what is wrong with the world. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you're ready to receive God's gift, to stop running and hiding and trying to self-justify and play the victim, if you're ready to be reconciled to God, then you can come to Him today. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. It's a simple prayer asking for God's forgiveness and acknowledging the sin in our lives. It's going to be on the screen. Wherever you are, you can actually pray along with me in your own heart and ask for God to reconcile you to Himself. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm sorry for choosing to go my own way, rejecting Your good rule in my life. Thank You for Jesus' perfect obedience and life-giving death and resurrection. Please forgive me and change me to live in relationship with You as my God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have asked God for His forgiveness, His solution is effective. Jesus has died in your place and you have been reconciled to Him. And that is worth rejoicing in. So we'd love to rejoice with you. Can I remind you of the slips? Uh, they're a great opportunity for you to ask questions, which we'd love to answer live on Thursday. But if you've given your life to Jesus, received His forgiveness, we'd love to hear that. You can let us know on the slips and we'll get in touch about how you can walk, not in rebellion against the God who made you, but in obedience to Him.
Uh, thanks so much for joining us in this first live-streamed Bible talk. It'll be available online uh, for you to come back and watch or to share with your friends. We'll be live again on Thursday at 12, back on Facebook, and again next Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in.